You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Todd said, I'm Fritz Hager. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, filling in for Ross for a couple of weeks. Um, it is a great honor to stand in front of you today. It's, um, it is an awesome responsibility to stand before people and say, this is what God said, and that's what this means. And um, I'm thankful for a church that allows me to do this. July 1st, 1985 is a day I will never forget. It's actually a week from today. It will be exactly 33 years from that date. Or at least I should say it's a date I will never forget because that day for me in 1985 was our day or reception day, which is a very benign sounding name for the first day of cadet basic training at West Point. Those are the nice names. Uh, it was also called Beast Barracks, and that's probably the only name that I can repeat in church. <laughs> this day starts with you and your family nervously waiting for an officer to step to a microphone, and he gives a very forgettable speech. But I do remember when at the end of that he said, you now have 30 seconds to say goodbye to your family. From there, it's a blur. There's yelling, haircuts, the kind that can be done in about 30 seconds. There's uniform fittings. There's more yelling. There's marching. There's more yelling. In fact, I'm pretty sure, I don't think I smiled for the first month I was there. And I know I certainly didn't smile outside of my room. But you know what I remember about July 1st, 1985? I remember meeting these guys. Almost 33 years to the day. I've known these guys for so long, they are starting to feel like forever friends. That's us at the retirement ceremony for the guy in the middle who retired as a one-star general, did countless numbers of tours. He's among the first troops into Afghanistan. And we're standing, you can't really see it, the X right there is World Trade Center Steel. You know, after we graduated from West Point, we have never even lived in the same town, hardly the same state, but we have been to wedding after wedding, promotions, now retirements, several reunions, lots of football games, and now the cycle of kids' weddings is starting. And when we get together, it's like we have not missed a beat. Our wives like each other, fortunately. Our kids seem to get along. But here's what I know. I could call any one of those guys, and they would hop on a plane and come help me if I asked. No questions asked. They're those kind of friends. Forever friends. You have those kind of friends? Forever friends. Friends who you know you could call on if you were in trouble. Friends who stick with you when the going gets tough? Or are you alone, disconnected, 
disconnection is a big problem in our society, even in the church, nationally, and even in this church. And I think it's actually getting worse. And I have a study to prove it. So here's the study. Health insurer Cigna, one of those big bad insurance companies, uh, conducted a study using their, the U.S. Loneliness Index. And it found that 46% of Americans report feeling lonely, sometimes or always, and a little less, 43% report feeling isolated from others. And the same number report feeling they lack companionship and their relationships lack meaning. Now, this isn't a survey based off of 50 people. It's a survey based off of 20,000 people living in the United States. And two things struck me about this study. The first is the reason Cigna is studying loneliness to begin with. And they cite another, re- another study that says loneliness is bad for our health, which is why they look at it. In fact, that same study says that being lonely is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Now, I had to Google this because I'm not a smoker, but that's three-quarters of a pack of cigarettes every day is the same effect as if you're lonely. Loneliness is actually killing us. The second thing that surprised me about this study was that it's worse in younger generations than it is older generations. It's kind of a straight line. The younger you are, the more lonely you are. The older you get, the less alone you feel. And you think about, so over age 72 has the highest degree or the lowest degree of loneliness among any of the generations. And you think among that group, there's a disproportionate representation of widows and widowers yet they're the ones that feel the least lonely. 18 to 22, those are the ones who feel most alone. And before you go to the very simple answer that seems to be the root of all kinds of evil in our society today, the same study found no correlation between social media use and loneliness. So how about you? Are you alone? Do you feel alone? Alone in a crowd of people, alone maybe in this very room, alone when you're at school or college, or even lonely and isolated in your own family or marriage. Our passage today finishes our series on 2 Timothy, and it includes the last recorded written words of Paul, and it finds Paul feeling alone, abandoned, and in a hole in an underground prison in Rome. So turn or click with me to the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 22. And if you hit Titus, you've gone too far, back it up a page and you'll be right there. And while you're doing that, I'll preview how we'll spend the rest of our time together. This is kind of a long passage, so I'm going to break it up into three parts. Verses 9 through 13, I'll call fickle friends, and faithful workers. Then verses 14 to 15 is the flourishing foe. 
And 16 to 18 is the forever friend. And I pretty much don't know what to do with 19 through 22, so we'll just skip that. Just kidding, kind of. So let me read the first section to you, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 4. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also the books, and above all, the parchments. Verse 9 starts with a request of Timothy to come soon. And we see in the text two reasons why. If you were to look down at verse 21, Paul repeats the request, adding, come before winter. There are a couple of reasons for this urgency. Paul knows firsthand that the journey by sea from where Timothy is to where Paul is, is treacherous during the winter months. The second is that Paul has some physical needs. He needs his cloak. Now, though it might be hard for us to imagine only having one coat or jacket, I should say at least it's hard for me to imagine that. A little aside, my wife, Serena, she gives me a hard time Because I have so many jackets and coats. I'm kind of like the Goldilocks of jackets. I have this system that's based off three variables. Temperature, wind, and precipitation. And I pretty much have the exact right match for every situation you can possibly find. And unlike my wife, I never complain about being cold. But Paul, like almost everyone else that lived that day, and maybe for some of you, he only has one coat. And it's probably like a poncho with a hole around the neck. It's kind of round, and your arms hang out. And it was made of wool, and it did two things. One, it was his coat that he'd walk around in, but at night, it also became his blanket. And so winter is coming, and so he needs his coat. He needs the blanket. But he also asked for his books and, above all, the parchments. The books are not like the ones we have together uh, today, but they would be uh, several sheets of papyrus sewn together and sometimes would have a wooden or a metal cover on them. So they do kind of look like books or notebooks. The second, the parchments are animal skins, and they are probably blank animal skins that would be used for writing. So Paul, sitting in this hole in prison, who's written a good chunk of the New Testament for us, still wants to continue writing. But he's running out of supplies. Which brings us to the first aspect of true friendship. And that is this. Are you open enough, humble enough, and dependent on another human being enough to let them know you need help. Can you admit that you are not an island unto yourself and that you need somebody else to help you? 
I'll confess, I struggle with this greatly. So here's a heads up. If I ever call you and ask for help, I promise it's the last resort. I've tried everything else under my own power to solve that problem. And in desperation and in humiliation, I'm calling you. And that's not good. That's just my pride. Happened a couple of weeks ago. I was out hunting for hogs with Henry Forna, the pastor from Africa who was here last week, leads our church planting ministry in Sierra Leone. And so he, uh, he, his dad was a hunter when he was growing up in Africa, and he wanted to go to the bush and hunt. And so we went out to the woods and were hunting hogs. And it had been a very frustrating trip. Henry had shot two hogs, and they'd both run off into the woods, and we'd not been able to find them. So I took my truck to a place that I should not have taken my truck. We've had several people get stuck there before. And as I'm backing out after we couldn't find the hogs, I get tangled up with the leg of my brother's deer stand. And when I say tangled up, I really mean tangled in that somehow the metal leg of his deer stand got between my truck and the inside of the bumper. And it is literally wrapped around my bumper. And when I did that, the deer stand falls onto the back of the tailgate of my truck. And Henry and I tried. We couldn't, we, I can't bend metal. I'm not Superman, in case you were wondering. Maybe Jason Chandler could. I, don't, I can't. I cannot bend metal. Henry and I are yanking on it. We're pushing. We're pulling. I pull forward. I move back. That thing is not moving. So I did the thing I hate most. I called and asked for help. I actually called Brian Fiden, who I think through the glare, yeah, Brian is sitting over there. Brian is one of our deacons. Uh, it was after 10 o'clock at night. He was a 30-minute drive away, plus he needed to go to his warehouse to get a jack, a cordless angle iron cutter, which I didn't even know existed, straps, and who knows what else he got. But here's what I know. If you're going to ask someone for help, make sure they have skills and tools. You need both of those and a truck that's bigger than yours. And Brian fit the bill for all three of those. I think Brian was only physically there for maybe 20 or 30 minutes, but the whole ordeal cost him probably two or three hours. It was the middle of the night. And I can't remember the last time I felt so grateful for my friend Brian. Brian might have hated me in that moment, but I sure felt closer to him. And I would have hugged him if he didn't smell because he was so sweaty at the time. But when we look at this list of friends here in this passage, we see two different types. Those who are fickle, who abandon Paul, such as Demas. Paul mentions Demas two other times in Scripture, Philemon 24, Colossians 4.14. Both are written during the time of Paul's first imprisonment, and the letters don't say anything other than Demas says hello. So we don't know much about Demas, but here in verse 10... Demas has abandoned Paul in Rome because, Paul says, Demas loved this present world. Which probably doesn't mean that his life was threatened and he really wanted to stay alive because he loved this world. Paul uses this term here to describe a value system, a philosophy, a way of life, the way everybody acted, their goals, their priorities. It doesn't say exactly why Demas needed to go to Thessalonica. He could have had 
a job, a new job. He might have had a sick family member. Text doesn't say. But it does say that he deserted Paul. Because he loved today more than he loves eternity. Which is so easy for all of us to do. Demas had different priorities than Paul. And so he abandoned or deserted him. The second group of friends are the faithful workers. Crescens, Titus, Luke, and Tychicus. They're all co-laborers with Paul. And he sent three of them away, even if that meant that he was left alone. He placed the ministry above his personal needs and desires. He had the eternal view, which is a great reminder for all of us. I want to make two observations about these types of friends. The first is that the reality is you can never have enough co-workers in ministry. Paul sent a bunch of his away, but he needed more. And that wasn't new or unique to Paul. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And it was still true for Paul then, and almost 2,000 years later, it's true today, even here at Bethel. Especially after we sent all those workers over to White House, good riddance to them, to launch a new campus. So today, pick an area of service. Hospitality, making coffee, greeting, teaching, anybody from the age of birth all the way up through high school, and I promise you, you are needed. There is not a single place on this campus, across all three campuses, that if you walk up to somebody and say, hey, can I help? And they say, yeah, I got it covered. We don't need you. So why is that so important? Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 4 earlier, writing to the church that Timothy is pastoring. It says, beginning in verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So Christ gives each one of us, all of us, a gift. It's a gift of grace. You haven't earned it. And as Ross says countless times, it's a gift given to you but not for you. It's for someone else. And if you've heard this before, you think maybe this is just a letter between pastors and it's really a pastor's job to do this stuff or the people get paid to do it. Paul clears that up later in verse 12 of Ephesians 4 where he says the role of the pastor is to equip the saints, that's all of us, for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the other thing that passage tells me is that our work isn't done until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Which I know at least means you've got more work to do on me. So for those of you who are working on me, thank you. But it's not just for me, it's for every single person on this campus. We need you all 
and it's important. You know, this is the 21st century. We've made it super easy to start serving. All you have to do is go to the web, fill out a nice online application. Or you can go old school, but this will require you actually talking to someone. And you can walk up to any person serving or any ministry leader on this campus and say, how can I help? And if they say, we don't need your help, I'll buy you lunch. And we'll sit down and figure out a place for you to serve in this church, a place for you to use your gifts. You know, there's a great backstory on this long list of faithful workers. Mark, who's sometimes called John Mark or John, and that's who Paul asked Timothy to bring with him because he's useful for ministry. What's great about this text is it shows Mark's restoration and reconciliation with Paul. Mark joined Paul and Barnabas on their very first missionary journey, but Mark doesn't finish the mission. Acts 13.13 says that he returned back to Jerusalem. Doesn't say why, but he left. We do see that Paul still remembers that when it's time to go out again. He's getting ready to start his second missionary journey, and Barnabas, his friend and co-worker, wants to bring Mark, and Paul disagrees. In fact, he disagrees so much that Acts 15, 13 says, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. But it appears that somewhere along the way, Mark had earned Paul's trust back, since he's mentioned a couple of times as helping him while he was imprisoned in Rome in two letters that had been written earlier. And here, Paul's actually asking for him to come back to help him. I hope you find that as encouraging as I do. Mark blows it. Mark quits. But he's still useful. In fact, that Mark is likely the author of the gospel of Mark. So maybe you read this passage and you feel more like a Demas than a Mark. In love with this world and distracted and busy for whatever reason. But this text shows us it's not too late to become a Mark. Maybe you just blew it in your life somewhere in the past like we all have, but you've bought into the lie that God can't use you because of that. But this text tells us that Mark is exhibit A for proof that you absolutely can be of use. In fact, it can be of unimaginable use if you repent and step back into the work that God has prepared for you. You know, I started with the picture of my buddies from West Point, my forever friends. And I know that some of you out there have served in the military And after I left West Point and went into the Army, I found the same thing to be true there, where you have this great camaraderie while serving together in tough places, going through things that are difficult and sometimes awful things. And those experiences bind you together. They forge your friendship, if you will. I read a little bit about the process of forging metal this week. And what you do is you heat a piece of metal to the exact right temperature, and then you apply pressure to it. 
which used to mean a big man with big arms and a big hammer beating on it. It's probably not very much fun to be the metal. But what's happening at a micro level is the distance between the molecules is shrinking. It's being pounded together. And in the process, they actually line up and form grain inside a metal. And it's this compaction and this alignment that makes the metal strong and useful. You know, after I left the military, I had a hard time finding that kind of fellowship and camaraderie. Part of it was because life, fortunately, was not nearly as hard as it was in the military. There's less heat, less pressure. And I looked for it in several places, but I didn't find it until I started working in ministry. You have the shared values and ideals. You share hardships and sacrifice. You have the same mission. And the other thing that made military friendships so strong is we were set apart. Set apart from the world. We were different, not better, but different. We had different haircuts. Happens to be the same one I have now, which is a weird twist of fate. We had different uniforms. We have all these bizarre customs. And we have bigger guns. But the same thing is true about all of us as believers. Not the guns part. Maybe. But we have been set apart. We're not supposed to be like the rest of this world. We're not supposed to be conformed to this world. We're not supposed to be like Demas. So here's my ask. If you're at church today, listening and you're lonely, and you want to be connected. You want forever friends, friends you can call in the middle of the night to get a deer stand off your truck, but you find yourself on the sidelines of the mission of the church. So I'd say to you is it's not too late to step in and serve, to share in the sacrifice. And that is the best way to get connected, to get to know folks, is through serving with them. So that wraps up the first section, fickle friends and faithful workers. And I do have time to keep going, so we won't end there. Let's look at verses 14 and 15, titled by me, The Foe Flourishes. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Now, we're really not sure who Alexander is, since that was a very common name. It could be the Alexander from 1 Timothy 1.20, who Paul says he handed over to Satan so that he would learn not to blaspheme. Maybe he's still around and holds a grudge against Paul. Or maybe he's just somebody who testified against Paul at the first defense that we're about to hear about from Paul. But Paul says Alexander did him great harm. But here's the interesting thing. Look at the contrast here in verse 14 where Paul says, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And later in verse 16 where all Paul's friends have deserted him and he says, may it not be charged against them. Why mercy from Paul for this one group and judgment from God for the other. 
could be several answers. I think one of them is at the end of 15, it says, Alexander strongly opposed Paul's message, which he explains in verse 17, which we'll get to in a second. But it's clear that Alexander is not on team Paul. But I think there are two deeper reasons. One is that Paul cares more about his mission than he cares about himself. But I think the main thing is the fact that the message is opposed. You know, that's consistent with the pattern we see throughout Scripture, which says that teachers are held to a higher standard than those who don't teach. Alexander is a false teacher opposing Paul's message. So first, we have fickle friends and faithful workers. We have the flourishing foe. And now, we get to forever friend. Beginning in verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord... The Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, from the world's point of view, this is a very sad scene. Paul, not just alone, not just rushed to trial and his friends couldn't get there in time. Paul says his friends deserted him, which means they were there and then they left. It's the same word used earlier to describe what Demas did. And it's the same word the gospel writers used to translate what Jesus said on the cross when he cried, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? That was the cry of Jesus when the sin of the world, past, present, and future, your sin, my sin, all was laid on him. And for the first time in all of eternity, that perfect fellowship that existed between father and son was broken. And he found himself utterly alone, and abandoned. It's the same word that describes Paul here, standing before his accusers, deserted, abandoned, and alone. So even super-Christian Paul gets abandoned by his church buddies, which maybe that gives us some small comfort because we blow it. Because yes, we are supposed to be there for each other. We're supposed to support, to encourage, to admonish, to teach, to love, and to serve. But at some point, we usually get a little Demas in us. And we disappoint, we fall short, and that leaves you alone. You know, many of you have heard parts of the story about what was happening in my family when we moved to Tyler in 2009. Serena had been pregnant with twins, and we lost one of them at 18 weeks while we were on vacation in Florida. But God was gracious, and He placed us 
next to one of four hospitals in the United States that does this experimental procedure called a delayed interval delivery, where they literally deliver the dead baby, sew mom back up, chemically stop labor, and put mom back to bed with the hope that she can stay pregnant long enough for the baby to be born and have a chance to live. We were at 18 weeks, and we needed to get to 24 weeks to have a 50-50 chance that Sam would make it. You know, this was one of the toughest times for our family. Mom and dad separated from five young kids for the first couple of weeks when we were in Florida, and they had gone back to Texas. And then when he got back to Tyler and Serena was in and out of the hospital, first here, later in Dallas. And the church was great. Many of you were there and were great. You fed us, which is a feat for a family our size. You helped us unpack boxes and move into our house that we hadn't even unpacked. You prayed for us constantly and you encouraged us. Even though most of you didn't even really know us because we hadn't even started working at Bethel. But over this eight-week period with Serena in and out of the hospital, and then over the next three-plus months with Sam in the NICU in Dallas, there were times when friends, even forever friends, were not enough. Even her husband, me, imperfectly stretched between my family here in Tyler and the rest of my family in Dallas. I couldn't be there like she needed me to be. Laying in a hospital room by herself, she was alone. But the Lord, verse 17, the Lord did something for Serena that I couldn't do. He did the same thing for Paul here. He stands with Paul, which he has done before, but this seems to be an explicit statement of Paul sensing the very presence of the Lord with him. And that presence strengthened Paul. And the interesting thing about Paul's use of the Greek here, as I geek out for a little bit, is the word here is not the common word for strength, sterizo. You probably hear that and think of steroids, the English word of steroids. New Testament writers use that both for physical strength and for spiritual strength. But Paul uses the term here, Indunamao, which only refers to divine action. This type of strengthening is something only God can do. So when your forever friends become distracted friends, or worse, they abandon you, know this through faith that the Lord is standing with you and He will not forsake you. And He can give you a strength and a peace that surpasses all understanding. And as I look out here today, I've seen many of you experience that same thing in awful times. Where it was both heart-wrenching and awesome to see happen. And the reason he does this for Paul and for us is not to remove the pain from us, not to make us comfortable, but to empower us to work. 
That word strengthen is really divine enablement. For Paul, it's so that the message that Jesus has broken down the wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles, two more different people you cannot imagine, that Paul wrote to the same church that Timothy is pastoring in Ephesians 2, 13 and 14. But now in Christ Jesus, you, those of us in this room who are Gentiles, who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. That was Paul's message. And the very fact that we, mostly Gentiles, are gathered here today is evidence that Paul's mission was successful. And as Paul sat in his prison cell, I'm sure it looked like he was losing, according to this present world. But he was really winning. Which is why he wrote in verse 18, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul had the eternal perspective, not the perspective of this present world. And it's only the eternal perspective that will cause you to be less in love with this world. The eternal perspective will give you eyes to see that service is not really a sacrifice, but an act of worship and a privilege. I started off with a picture of my West Point buddies, guys that I've known and loved for 30 years, my forever friends. But here's the hard truth. I'm not really sure they're my forever, forever friends. Because even though they are great guys, they've served our country, they have wonderful families, they love their wives... Some of them go to church regularly. But if I look at them with an eternal perspective, I'm not really sure whether they think it's their goodness or the work of Jesus that will get them into the kingdom of heaven. I'm not sure that it's their faith, their belief, that Jesus was the eternal Son of God who stepped into creation, lived as a real man, who put himself on a cross, and who was murdered unjustly, bearing your sin and my sin. And that that same man was buried in a grave where he laid for three days and rose again and is seated at the right hand of his Father. And I don't know that they believe that is what gets them to be my forever, forever friend. That's how we are forever, forever friends. It's the only unfailing cure for loneliness. And it's the only way that we can tap in to that supernatural strength that Paul refers to here. So let's pray.
Father, we are dependent on you for strength.